Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips. All right, uh, how would you like to introduce our guest for today? Well, thanks for that update. That was really informative. I like when you go back into the long-term climatology as well. It gives us a good perspective. Uh, Jason, we're so excited to have you on the National Tropical Weather Conference this morning. I wanted to read your very impressive biography. Jason Dunyan specializes in satellite remote sensing of hurricanes and has led the development of several new satellite products for monitoring tropical cyclones, Saharan dust storms, and the diurnal cycle of hurricanes. His research has also included restructure. Um, I'm sorry, um, reconstructing wind fields of several historical landfalling hurricanes, including Donna in 1960 and Betsy in 1965, developing new climatological atmospheric soundings for the North Atlantic, and leading the development of a new scheme, the TC Genesis Index, for predicting tropical cyclone genesis. Dunyan has acted as chief scientist on several hurricane hunter research missions including NOAA's high-altitude jet and P-3 Orions, and has flown on over 50 Hurricane Hunter flights. He has also served as director of the Hurricane Research Division's field program. Jason, welcome to the National Tropical Weather Conference. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's always good to be with you guys. Yeah, it's good to see you. Jason's actually in Connecticut in spite of the rather tropical-looking shirt he's got on there. (laughs) Uh, so uh, to start out with, Jason, why don't you show the slideshow that will get us uh, focused a little bit on what it is you're doing this year. Yeah, sure. This has been a fun year with the Hurricane Hunters, um, kind of paving the way, kind of uncharted territory, places we've never been to before, uh, where no hurricane has gone before. So what we wanted to do was get out to the Cape Verde Islands. Um, we always sample with the hurricane hunters, we're either based out of Florida or we might go up the East coast along the Gulf coast. Sometimes we'll head to the Caribbean, but it leaves that whole central and Eastern Atlantic just out of our range. If we had a, a NOAA hurricane hunter, uh, you know, aircraft carrier, we could pull it off, but we can't. So we actually paved the way to get out to the East Atlantic. And, and why do we want to do that? Why do we want to take all those resources and go out there? Um, it's because there just aren't any observations out there. It's a really scarce part of the world as far as observations. But it's also very close to the hurricane hunter or the hurricane breeding area. It's, it's where the genesis happens. It's, it's the nursery for hurricanes. So we want to get all those observations, get our planes out there, get that data into the forecast models to improve the forecast, right? Get some data going that, that really routinely isn't available. And really, we talked a little bit about genesis a second ago. What about the formation of storms? A lot of storms that we see in the Atlantic are coming from that nursery over Africa. So let's try to get our planes out there to start sampling these systems a little bit earlier. So there's all these forecast improvements, but there's also the understanding, right? We want to understand that nursery better. And these tropical waves, these ripples, these disturbances that come out of that hurricane nursery. We also want to look at dust storms and how they're affecting these disturbances, these huge Saharan dust outbreaks that can act to squash some of the hurricanes that we see out there. And really, how do we best sample? You know, we've never sampled with our drop zones, our little parachuted weather instruments. We don't usually sample out there. So how do we do it the best to improve the forecast the most? So really, there's a lot to learn by going out there. So we took our G4 jet out there um, back in August. It's a high altitude um, Gulf Stream, flies at about 45,000 feet. And it's, it's a, a long haul to get out there. Um, you could almost make it in one hop, but we did stop in St. Croix to refuel. So all in all, it's about 4,000 miles just to set up on these, at these islands. And the great thing is it brings us about 400 miles from that nursery that we're talking about, uh, where, where we see over half the named storms in the Atlantic are coming from this part of the world over Africa. So it sets us up in a really interesting place. There's our flight crew. It uh, takes takes quite a few people uh, to get this go, get these flights going. This is us in Cape Verde. Uh, that's half the Gonzo emblem. Uh, Gonzo is from the Muppets. Is the name of our G4 high altitude jet. And you can see it's kind of it's packed with a lot of instrumentation, including a tail Doppler radar. So that radar actually paints a 3D picture of, say, a tropical wave that we might be looking at. And we're also launching these little drop sounds. They look like this 
with little parachutes out of the, the belly of that plane, taking measurements, whether it's temperature, humidity, pressure, th- everything you want to know about the storm um, as we're flying. And it's interesting to study a hurricane where you can get inches and inches of rain. Sometimes it's feet of rain in a place like Cape Verde that looks like a desert. Um, it's really the anti-hurricane. Um, and a lot of that is because of these Saharan dust storms and, and this really dry, stable air that kind of affects this part of the world. So you can see it's super, super dry out there. You can see us coming in on our approach uh, to the Cabo Verde uh, airport for the first time. This is our uh, initial approach to the airport. And it looks like, you know, it looks like something out of the Martian. Um, it's a really desolate uh, landscape. Again, we're here in this this desert area to study something that's that's truly tropical, right? These tropical disturbances coming off the coast, and they make for beautiful sunsets. Um, it's it's how Hal and I were talking a little, a little while ago. I mean, the amount of dust in the air is, is spectacular, and the way the sun kind of scatters off that dust, it's really best to look at sunset and sunrise to really see that sky just kind of lights up for you. And you can see there it is after one of our flights. So. Fly, when we take off from, from Cabo Verde, you know, that dust layer is usually about a mile above you. And the top of it is about three miles. So it's about a two-mile thick layer of dust. And the great thing about the G4 flying at 45,000 feet, we actually cut right through the dust layer. So at this point, we're probably up at about 25,000, 30,000 feet. We're actually looking down on that dust. And there's barely a cloud in the sky. You can see some clouds here in the in the foreground. There's an island right here, one of the Cape Verde Islands. Um, but all of this uh, in the middle part of that picture is just dust. There are absolutely no clouds out there. And you can see us coming in. And I've, I've seen old ship reports from the 1800s describe this, this eerie fog that affects this area. Um, and they didn't know that it was dust back then. Um, and we got to experience that coming back in after one of our missions. It's a it's very eerie when you're landing, and we're probably only about a thousand feet over the ocean right here. And you, abs- the pilot said, you absolutely couldn't see anything. You couldn't see the island. You couldn't see the ocean. Um, it was very eerie coming in. Uh, so it's pretty awesome coming into that after that flight. Mm-hmm. And then my last shot is just a quick, quick walk through the G4. It's pretty tight in there. Uh, we don't have those cushy leather seats going. Uh, you can see there's lots of stations where we're, we're taking our measurements. Uh, here's my station right here. Um, and pilots up front. So it's, it's pretty packed. And we actually had a, a really unique, uh, some observations this year. NASA had their DC-8 out there in Cape Verde as well. And you can see they're flying above the clouds here. Uh, it's pretty dramatic when you get, and I'll stop it right here, when you come from this pristine, moist atmosphere, and then all of a sudden, you'll just run into this dust cloud um, that just takes over the image. Um, and it's just a blanket of dust below. Um, almost no clouds, but you can't even see the ocean um, as you're looking down. So that DC-8 flying above the dust layer, they kept going in and out of the tropical atmosphere. You can see it gets nice and blue, and then they go back into the dust layer. So similar to what we did to really try to map out these dust storms and and look at how tropical waves might be impacted um, by these dust storms. So in the end, uh, we flew three missions, uh, had them up here on the, on this chart. Um, Flight number one on August 9th, 10th was our second and then August 11th and took advantage of our flight back to Barbados by taking some observations of a tropical wave that had come out of that nursery, like many do during the summer, um, when we tracked it for a few days. It ended up not forming. Um, we could see a lot of that dry Saharan dust, dry Saharan air started wrapping into this tropical wave, and it kind of starved it. Um, but it was a really interesting storm to follow. The ones that form into a very strong storm, um, like, say, a Dorian, those are interesting to watch coming out of the nursery, but so are the ones that never form. Uh, you can learn a lot from those as well. So that was just one of the things that we did this summer. But this is one of my favorites um, because I've been studying those dust storms for a long time. So getting over to the nursery and, you know, only a few hundred miles from Africa, uh, it was pretty exciting. And, and hopefully we get to do it again next year. I think we've really paved the way to get back out there again. So pretty exciting uh, summer. That really kicked us off to what has become fairly busy, right? A, a quiet start, but September certainly was pretty busy for us. So. Definitely exciting uh, and happy to share it with you guys. Okay. Uh, if that's your last slide, you can unshare and we'll start chatting. Uh, 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 
have you got any preliminary uh, uh, things you've learned from uh, this year's missions, or are you still waiting to get the data reduced? It's a, yeah, it's a little bit of both, as you know. There's a lot to crunch through. One thing that was really interesting is, you know, we see this tropical wave and the satellite imagery, this little disturbance, and it, it looked like it was fairly protected from that dry Saharan air. But when we got in there with the observations, you know, we're dropping our drop signs, it became clear pretty pretty quickly that there was dry air seeping into that tropical wave. It wasn't as protected as it looked. Um, so it was one of those cases where, it, you know, you might be a little bit optimistic about the, the future of that wave, but it really, um, it was really struggling the entire time and it ended up just kind of fizzling out out there. So that, that was one of the early looks uh, that was pretty exciting to look at. Yeah. yeah. By chance, do you get, to, are you going to look at uh, uh, comparing what you found in the drop zones for the, especially the distribution of the stable layers, the dry air, the dust and all with what the models are forecasting? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you could, there's no data out there as we talked about, right? So a lot of it's coming from satellites and they don't, they do a pretty good job of trying to pick apart the atmosphere, but not as good as the drop zones that we have. So that'll definitely be one thing that we look at is what does it really look like? And what does the model think it looks like? What is that comparison? Is the model too moist? Does it think it's nice, that system's nicely protected or does it know about that dry air? So that'll be that'll be one thing that'll definitely be exciting to do. Yeah, I think that, that that'll be really helpful. Uh, the uh, did, did the uh, DC8 also do drop sons, or were they collecting a different sort of data? They they were packed with instrumentation. Drop sons is one thing they had. They they also had something called uh, a halo lidar, which I I think would be really neat to get on a, the NOAA aircraft basically a laser that looks down and it's able to look at the moisture and the dust and, and to really pick apart these Saharan dust storms. So that aircraft flies pretty high up at about 35, 38,000 feet um, and very well equipped. Um, and they were out there for the entire month of September. So wow. uh, definitely a, a great opportunity. NASA doesn't get out into the Atlantic as often as NOAA does. So hopefully we get to kind of repeat the performance next year. Yeah, that plane is probably older than everyone that was flying on it. It's a, it's a great point. It's about to be retired, so there's only maybe another mission left with the NASA DC-8. Uh, it, it is. It, it's been around for a long time. Are they going to replace it with, uh, uh, like, the, the Navy-type configurated uh, uh, 737s, or are they... Uh, or do you, do you know? I think it's to be determined, but it could be one of the seven classes, 737, 757, something that can kind of do what the DC-8 does, where you could fly low, but you can also get that really high altitude and, and cover a lot of territory. So I think they're still trying to figure out, you know, what aircraft will best replace this. And and we're doing the same thing, as you know, with the NOAA aircraft, you know, the next generation aircraft. What what airframe is going to be the best to get the biggest bang for the buck while we're hunting out there? That's so good to hear. I mean, I spent all my time in the weather service. A few years I was in headquarters, and when I was at Hurricane Center, just defending keeping what we had at the time we weren't even in discussion of what next and uh, now that they're not making p3s anymore it's obviously got an, an end time coming up sooner or later that's right and you fought the good fights like we even had the p3s re-winged right because they were getting to that point in their age and that that bought us another five or ten years which is yeah, that was really the battle cool. i got involved in it was, yep. it was interesting it's actually not that hard. We had you know, bipartisan support for what you guys do. So was, you just had to get them informed on it and get them up to speed, and then it would get taken care of. Yeah, you, you can quickly make your case for how, you know, how much we get from these aircraft and, and how, much, how many lives and how much property is saved each year. Yeah, that reminds me. The one thing it wasn't successful at at the time, but I've, I've heard rumors that it might come to pass is a – a second G4 or similar aircraft for the high-level stuff. How's that coming along? That's coming along nicely. So the plan is that that would be a G550. So that's kind of the next generation after the yeah. G4. Similar capabilities, but it can fly even a little bit higher, um, maybe closer to about 51,000 feet. And the range is a little bit farther. So we could make that hop out to Cape Verde from Florida um, without even a stop with the G550. So it starts opening up some extra doors. Um, and hopefully we can add, because it has more ports, more ability to add instruments, uh, we can make it even more of a flying laboratory than the G4, which would be really exciting, I think. That's great. Great news there. 
I'm going to let Hal take over for a minute here. You may have been hearing some yapping and barking going on. i got to find out what's wrong with the dog. <laughs> Be right back. Hal? <laughs> Jason, re really interesting uh, stories. Thank you for sharing your, your uh, journeys there and your, your research. I had a couple questions. The first one, I've heard some people say that Saharan dust tends to have more of a, a factor earlier in the summer, like June and July, compared to, say, August, September. Is that really true? And if so, what drives that climatology? Yeah, that's a great question. What we definitely see is that those Saharan dust storms that march off the coast of Africa make make their way across the entire Atlantic. They reach the Gulf of Mexico, Texas, Florida, even Central America. And the peak season really runs from June to mid-August. So there's this little window early in the season, which also is pretty quiet usually for tropical cyclones. That things haven't really ramped up. We don't usually see our first hurricane until you know, that second week in August or so. So yeah, you're exactly right. It, there is this favored peak season and, and it's so predictable. Um, some of it has to do with the heating over Africa that kind of peaks in that July timeframe. And also the, when that subtropical high, that kind of conveyor belt, conveyor belt high pressure over the Atlantic that kind of drives all of these systems to the West, it's strongest usually in about that July timeframe. So any dust that's coming off the coast really gets moved along very quickly. Um, so that summertime, um, it's it's amazing how, like clockwork, the peak happens in that early su summertime frame. By the time you get to mid-August, it starts to ramp down very quickly. And by the time you get to this time of year, uh, we still see dust, but it's really those outbreaks aren't making it across the, the Atlantic at all. Jason, you said it's pretty predictable. I mean, how much variability do we see from one year to the next as far as the quantity of dust, the spatial extent, things like that? Yeah, you know, we, we did a climatology of about eight years or 10 years of, of data to see, you know, what it looked like. And it, it was actually very stable as far as the, the amount of dust and, and outbreaks that we would see. But you do get these really interesting years that are the outliers. Like 2020, we saw some of the biggest dust storms we've ever seen on record. Uh, the most dust reaching all the way to the central part of the U.S. actually, um, and, and even North Carolina. I was driving up the East Coast and taking pictures of a Saharan air layer outbreak uh, in North Carolina that had traveled probably 7,000 miles. So there are these really interesting years where suddenly we get this real surge in that those dust outbreaks, and we don't totally understand why that happens yet. Jason, you mentioned some of these ship logs would talk about this strange fog that really wasn't fog, right? It might have been Sahara air dust. Is it possible to maybe reconstruct this going back really far using like ship records or other other historical resources? I think that would be really interesting. Some of those ship records actually talk about uh, a, a silt that's left on the deck of the ships. So they were clearly running into these into these Saharan air layer outbreaks. And some folks have even looked at soil samples because you're going to get, especially, you know, the peak's going to be in the, the midsummer where you'll, you'll get extra dust deposited over, over the year. So you start taking these core samples um, in places like Bermuda. And I think, like you said, you could start reconstructing what are the, some of the dustier years that we've seen? How has it changed over, say, the, the last hundred years or more? Um, we don't have good answers to that, but I think that it would be really interesting to look at. You mean possibly sediment or where soil cores could maybe that could show up in some of these island areas? I think so. I, you know, sometimes when I'm when I'm in the Caribbean, uh, this just happened when I was in Saint Croix. You get a shower, and suddenly the windshield of the rental car is covered in dirt. Um, and if you didn't know better, you would think your car was just dirty, but it's actually Saharan dust um, that's getting washed out by the rain. So that gets deposited, you know, on the soil. And, and I'm, I'm sure if you if you handled it correctly and, and it took really careful measurements, I bet, you know, you could get a pretty interesting history of outbreaks over the years. Really interesting stuff. Bill, do you have any other questions or Tim, has anything come in online yet? Yeah, we've got a couple of questions online. I've got a, a, a list of them here as well. Uh, let me start with one of Casper's questions. It's about the Saharan dust layer in general. Uh, about how thick does it tend to be and what millibar level is that? Yeah, so it tends to be about two miles thick. Um, so millibars, it's about 850 millibars. That's about 5,000 feet in the tropics. And the top is at about roughly 18,000 feet. So it's roughly around 500, 550 millibars. So in the grand scheme of Mother Nature, that's pretty shallow, um, but it's a, it's a really important layer to measure because the winds are, are whipping in that layer, 
um, and they're super dry. So the fact that it's so shallow really speaks to trying to get aircraft observations to really improve the models and improve the understanding of what we're looking at. And in this first run out of that part of the Atlantic Basin, really, um, was the data that you're able to collect added to the models? And did we notice an appreciable change, if you will, in what the models were able to do? Yeah, that was one of our big targets was not only did we get that data, that drops on data into the models, but we also used the models. So we were looking at ensembles. You know, we talk about those the spaghetti uh, plots. Um, so we look at the ensembles of the model. All the different members might have a storm getting stronger, getting weaker, somewhere in between, um, going north, going south. We analyzed those ensembles and the differences, and we actually came up with a way to, to target where do we want to put the drops on? Where do we want to launch these weather stations so that we get the biggest bang for the buck? Where is the model most uncertain with the data? So we were actually running those plots um, using the GFS model, the American model, as, as well as the European model to try to get a better handle on what was going on. Then we take the plane to those locations and deploy the drop signs. So in the off season, we'll start doing those assessments to see how the models responded to that data. Uh, it takes a little bit of crunching, but you know that's one of our main objectives from going out there for sure. So the significance is hopefully you'll be able to be out there, you know, for weeks on end during the coming seasons. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be because like that nursery, you know, it, it becomes very active, especially when you get into July um, and right through September. So like you said, like being out there, you're kind of the first line of defense taking these observations uh, to try to improve the models for storms. You know, 80 to 85 percent of the major hurricanes are coming from that nursery. So it's really the first line of defense to get a better handle on a storm that may affect the U.S. seven days later, 10 days later. Let's talk for a second, then we'll get back to Bill. Let's talk for a second about the, the perception of that dust cloud. You know, you're seeing it come right off of Africa when you're out there versus what we see when the dust cloud makes it to Texas, where I am now. You know, we see the dust cloud. It's up there, but, you know, it's a little bit dispersed by the time it gets here, a lot dispersed probably. And you've seen them in the U.S. as well. How did it compare when you're on the other side of the Atlantic Basin, what you see, what you feel, what you taste, you know? Yeah, that's a that's a good point because you're you're picking up in Texas, you know, five thousand miles down the road from from where we were. One thing that was very evident, and you could see these dust storms coming off the coast, heading toward Cape Verde, is the visibility would just go down to maybe a quarter of a mile, and it was very thick. Um, so it would, at the sunset time, it would really turn that glow. And and when we were landing with the aircraft, it literally made for conditions where you could not see the ocean or the airport. I mean, it was a little bit unsettling for me, but the pilots, of course, are pros. Um, and another thing that we really noticed is uh, a little bit of, of cough, a little bit of uh, irritation uh, with our respiratory systems, just because that's a lot of dust, right? Um, you know, the folks in Cape Verde are, are living with that all the time. Us Hurricane Hunter visitors don't see that as often. Um, but that's a really well-known thing is that uh, we call it PM10, particulate matter that's you can inhale that um, it's not going to be dangerous for you but it, it could cause especially if you have asthma or respiratory issues they actually can start to feel it which is which is interesting and, and certainly in cape verde we, we i felt it more than i ever have interesting interesting they'll jump back in i know you've got a lot of questions too well, yeah that on that last point i i, I remember uh there, well, i don't think it was this year but one of the summers there was a uh, they had an uptick in uh in people with uh, pre-existing respiratory conditions uh, going into the airports, and they'd asked about if there was something going on in the atmosphere that caused it. And sure enough, there was a we were in the, the uh, in the event of getting some of the Saharan air dust in there. Uh, does the do these dust particles have any impact on the moving parts of a jet? Good question. It was always something we were looking at. The answer is no, and you know there. The military operating out in the Middle East has been dealing with with this for a long time, whether it's helicopters or, or jet aircraft. Um, so the amount of dust, at least at the levels we're seeing, was never an issue. I think the biggest thing with the dust you'll see in Cape Verde is, is the visibility will just go down so much. Um, but the aircraft had no problem flying in that kind of environment. But it's certainly something to think about and it's something that the pilots were talking about because you're taking your aircraft into an area where it's never been before, right? You can't make any assumptions. Um, but yeah. luckily, everything was great, and, and uh, they're eager to go back out there again, actually, next year. Yeah. Uh, 
you mentioned the 2020, the big dust outbreak there. And uh, again, another probably uh, uh, false conclusion I've heard people say, if you got a lot of uh, dust showing up, you're going to have a low end hurricane season. Boy, that is absolutely not what happened in 2020. Is that pretty much what you've seen all along with this, that there's not yeah. a correlation in seasonal activity in the dust? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, too. In a big picture, we did look at dust using some an old satellite called AVHRR back in the 80s when there was a lot of dust, and it tended to be a quieter seasons overall. Um, but that's when you looked at several years and, and you know, over the entire hurricane season. But it's like you said, I think with these, and it's a reason we want to go out to Cape Verde, is you need to look at case by case. Because a system, a tropical wave that comes off the coast may be very well protected from that huge dust storm, or it may be just far enough south that it's not going to be affected. So that one may may get turned into a Cat 5 later on. Or the storm we looked at where that dry air was actually seeping into the tropical wave, that, that axis of the tropical wave, and, and clearly inhibiting the clouds. But if you don't look at it case by case, um, you're really missing out. And I don't think you can make the big assumptions that a dusty year equals yeah. no activity, like you said. Yeah, you got all the other aspects of the atmosphere that impacts exactly. genesis that you have to take into consideration. Yep, exactly. Wow. Is there any, uh, uh, any uh, ideas out there on, on how to use the data you're getting from the drop sons? Uh, to maybe come up with a, a remote sensing instrument on satellites to replicate what you're seeing in the dust dust area, or is that too far beyond what anyone can do yet? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think there there have been a couple of attempts at it. So you know, you look at some of the infrared sensors that are on the satellites, or or even the microwave sensors. They're actually, and, and one is called AIRS, another is called CRIS, where they're actually able to slice the atmosphere. Um, it's a fairly broad chunks, but look at, you know, what's the temperature in a rough profile of the atmosphere from the, way at the top, up in the exosphere, all the way down to the surface. There's even a, a satellite called Calypso that NASA has flown with a, a laser that's actually able to look at, you can actually see the Saharan air layer. You can see the dust from that layer. It's just a pinpoint measurement. And it's only, you know, it's polar, a lot of these are polar orbiting, so you're only getting looks twice a day or so. Mm-hmm. I think the real advantage would be if you could get these on a geostationary satellite, which is, you know, giving you a, a complete continuous look at the Earth, that would replicate, you could start to replicate what some of the drop signs are seeing rather than just get a, a satellite observation twice a day. So I think the future looks bright for a lot of those kind of measurements. I think it's just a little bit, it's a little bit off in our future, I think. Yeah, it's, it, it's something worth going after because it's like you've been pointing out all along, it's a heck of a long way to fly for an observation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, and I think the observations we're collecting can, can maybe tune, well, yeah. what do we really need the satellite to be able to measure um, that would really give us the big bang for the buck? Yeah. Uh, here was a question someone had. How many, uh, on a typical mission that you ran on this experiment, how many drop signs would you deploy? Yeah, so on those patterns I was showing, we would usually drop about 25 to 30, uh, depending on what model targets we were going after. We were trying to get down into the tropical wave um, as well. It gets a little bit tricky, especially when you go out to Cape Verde, is you have to take all of these instruments with you. Um, so there are boxes in the back of the aircraft, and we, and we took a quick look of the walkthrough of the G4. It's pretty tight quarters. Uh, one thing that, that I would say is pretty exciting is here's our current drop zone. And here's our mini drop sign. Um, so big difference. It's about half the size um, and half the width. So we're starting to get the those shipments are coming in this summer. Um, so we'll start to use those almost exclusively next year where we can take more of those drop signs with us to a remote location like Cape Verde Islands. Are those mini drops the ones that Global Hawk was, was using back in the day? Exactly. When we had the Global Hawk campaign, which is that high altitude drone, um, about 120 foot wingspan, right? That was a, a big drone, not the kind of drone you want to get wrapped in a tree. Um, we were, it was the prototype of those mini signs. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the first time those had ever been launched. Exactly. I remember there was there was some chatter among researchers about the com- accuracy or compatibility of that data with the other ones. Exactly. I was one of the science leads on that project, and we worked with. Um, with NSEP, with NOAA, to 
get folks confident with that data. Because, right, because you don't want to just take an observation that's never really been tested right into your models. You want to make sure it's solid before you do. Um, and, and we we showed some really good results and, and actually got that data into the models by the end of that campaign, which was great to see. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the near future, is, uh, is there anything different you guys are going to be looking at as far as uh, cracking the nut on the Genesis issue? Yeah, the Genesis issue is, is a tough nut to crack. We actually... I, w I was pretty excited. Um, Hurricane Earl that we had this year could end up being one of the best Genesis cases we've ever had as far as sampling from a system that's trying to get its act together. It's a tropical wave, something that forms into a tropical cycle and even a hurricane. Uh, we had about 12 days of continuous flights into that storm to, to really try to see what was happening. What we want to try to do in the future, um, and I'm hoping we can do some of this with Office of Naval Research, is to have a dedicated research program for Genesis again. We haven't done that in quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And take some of these next-generation instruments. We talked about that halo, that laser that can look at dust and moisture. Um, there are many others, too. Um, some that are, that are using radio occultation to look at, at the atmosphere and what the temperature and, and, and humidity look like. You're actually looking at signals from a GPS satellite um, and, and how they bend in the atmosphere to make your measurements. So I think if we can have a, a dedicated program, especially with these new aircraft coming online, G550 in a couple of years with NOAA, you know, we can start putting more instruments on those aircraft to, to really try to crack that nut like you're talking about. Um, and Genesis is tricky. It's a, it's a hard one. And it's going to take you out to a place where you may not get Genesis, right? You may be looking at a case that doesn't form, uh, but like we said earlier, those can be just as interesting. Oh yeah, I, uh, from, a, from a long time forecaster point of view, they're, they're equally as important. You don't wanna be forecasting formation of things that 80% of the time don't form. There will be no, no confidence in your forecast if you're doing that. So being able to understand and forecast the ones that don't develop is important. Right. And in, in the tropical weather outlook that the Hurricane Center puts out and you were showing it earlier, you know it all better than most, um, is sometimes it, it's completely covered with colors, right? The yellows, the oranges, the reds. It's, there's a lot of effort that goes into getting a Genesis forecast for a system that may never develop, right? But it's just as important because you have to be ready for it just in case it does. Yeah. Yeah. The forecasters go through the exact same procedure for each one of those. Because it's an observation point at that time, and it really is a forecast. Things can go wrong with that. <laughs> Good point. Uh, Hal, what you got? Jason, if you were to take an atmospheric profile, you mentioned like at 18,000 feet, there might be the top of this layer. Mm. Uh, I'm guessing like so when you get above that, does moisture start going up quite a bit? I mean, what do the temperature profiles look like as well? Like, what does this layer look like in, in other areas besides visibility? Like temperature, humidity, all that stuff. Yeah, that's a good, really good question. So, you know, as you go up in the atmosphere, as you know, the temperature uh, goes down as you go up. And what's interesting, when you hit the base, I'll just, I'll go bottom to top. When you hit the base of the Saharan air layer, it's, it's pretty moist going up. But then there's this huge temperature inversion, we call it, because that air came from the Sahara. So suddenly, instead of going down, the temperature starts going up. And it, I've seen it go up as much as 7 degrees Celsius um, in a very short time. So you get these inversions at the base. Um, and when you have a temperature going up like that in the atmosphere, it's very stable, as you know. So air that's trying to rise will almost just hit that hit that very warm layer that's less dense and you, you just can't get the cloud to punch through it. And then as you go up above that layer, you'll see the moisture just drop um, within that Saharan air layer. And it, it's usually about half the moisture that you would see in the tropical atmosphere. So you basically take this super juicy atmosphere and just slice that moisture in half, which really makes it hard. It can really suppress clouds um, and you get a lot of downdrafts when you have really dry air like that. So the profiles are not just sort of interesting, they're fantastic. And when you're out in the Cape Verde Islands, they're even more dramatic. Um, you, you can look at that sounding and, and go instantly, yep, that's a Saharan dust storm. It, it's a, it's exactly what we would expect to see. Sounds like the inversion is a big, big uh, indicator like it's going on, you know, yeah. uh, even if you didn't look at the moisture. Yep, exactly. And you'll see all the clouds, these really low clouds are just stuck at the inversion. They can't go any higher. So you, you see very specific cloud types, these stratocumulus that 
might have tops of maybe two or three thousand feet, but they just they just struggle to get any taller than that. Jason, another question. I actually lived for a couple of years in Northwest Africa, so I'm really interested in what's going on in the ground. I mean, are there values on getting ground observations, like wind, precipitation, drought, things like that, from on the ground in Africa, or is this pretty much where we can just kind of pick up everything through remote sensing? I think that I'd love to spend a little time, by the way, living in uh, in Africa after studying it for so that area so long. I think it would be very interesting to see, and one thing that's never been done is you see these tropical waves marching across Africa over the nursery. And just like a thunderstorm in the Midwest, they send out a gust front that moves away. And you you see that line of clouds if you're looking at a, a Midwest thunderstorm. But over Africa, that gust front that happens down in the moist Sahel reaches up into Africa and actually lifts up the dust off the desert floor. And that can be the precursor for a lot of these Saharan dust outbreaks. So I think it would be very interesting to have stations that were measuring not only the dust aerosols, but also measuring the winds right at the surface to see, are we getting a setup here that could lead to a, a huge Saharan air layer outbreak at some point soon? Um, and, and some of these outbreaks can be the size of the lower 48 states. So they're, they're humongous when they come off the coast. It's always interesting to start working upstream, like, well, wait, this happened here. What happened to lead to that, right? So, I mean, kind of tracing the breadcrumbs, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, we've we've got that trail now to the Cape Verde Islands. We were kind of closing in that, that trail of breadcrumbs from, used to be Barbados, now it's Cape Verde. But you talk about lack of observations, and, and I'm sure, Hal, you know this all too well. There's There's not much going on over Africa as far as, weather stations. So as sparse it is in the East Atlantic, there are virtually no measurements going on over Africa. So there's a lot of trying to read between the lines and it would be fantastic to try to extend that trail of breadcrumbs even farther East over the continent. Yeah. Really interesting uh, perspective there. I was, I was curious because you've spent a lot of time in the air, you've done remote sensing. I was curious to to ask that. Uh, Tim, Tim, do we have any other questions that have come in online? Well, a couple, you kind of alluded to the predictability of the Saharan dust layer based on what you see over Africa, but ultimately how predictable is that at the current state? I would say it's not very predictable. I mean, we look back at that that monster dust outbreak in 2020, and we didn't realize it at the time, but what was pretty evident in some of the reanalyses is there was a jet at 10,000 feet over Africa that was much stronger than usual. So all that dust that was getting lifted up off the desert floor rose up to about 10,000 feet. And then that jet just whisked it off to the West out into the Atlantic. But you know, that's hindsight is 2020. We don't really have, some of the forecast models are pretty good at predicting these outbreaks, but I think we've got a long way to go to better understand uh, and, and predict these events, I think is the answer to that question. Well, and this is this question is just kind of trying to predict the future, so it's just a guess. We understand that, but but you know, will there be a day when we look back and say, "Do you believe we had to fly airplanes into these things to find out what was going on?" That that there's some other system on the horizon, whether it's you know better satellite observation that, that can really see this without having to fly halfway across the planet. Yeah, you know, I don't think I'll be a dinosaur anytime soon, but someday, you know, you'll be looking, they'll be looking back and saying, yeah, there were folks that actually flew these. And I can imagine, you know, between the satellite technology um, that's coming online and the better antennas out in space that, would, that can provide, you know, better observations in the microwave, in the infrared, I think that's going to be a big piece of the future. But I also think some of these drones that we're, that we're starting to experiment with, Bill talked about the Global Hawk. That was a high altitude. Um, we, we launched during Hurricane Ian a small six to eight foot wingspan drone called Altius. Um, after getting beat up pretty good coming into, into Ian, uh, it was a really turbulent flight. We got into the eye and deployed this Altius out of the same chute um, that some of our other um, ocean measurement probes go out of right in the belly of the plane and that that wing those wings pop open um, and it starts flying we got about an hour and 45 minutes flying in some 200 plus mile per hour winds Um, you know and that's just kind of a first cut at what could be the future Um, if you had drones that had six hour duration um, and you had many drones 
you know, that could be a future as well. So you've got the satellite perspective. And I think some of these an, unmanned uh, or uncrewed aircraft systems, that's a future too, that we're just starting to crack into. But we've got a ways to go, I think. Peter Black's asking about the windborne sounding balloons, uh, like the ones launched and saw Cabo, Cabo Verde. Um, do you think we'll get new data from those, uh, dependable, reliable? Yeah, those are really interesting. So mo- we have a, a bunch of balloon stations scattered across the Caribbean. Um, Cape Verde used to have one. It's not operating right now. So that's just a balloon that's, that goes up from the station uh, and takes observations. It's like a drop sound going backwards, right? It's going up instead. What's interesting about the windborne balloons is it's a balloon sort of like the ones we launched from the Caribbean, but you can control its altitude. Um, and it can last for 10 days. Um, and you can, if you control the altitude and you know how the winds are blowing, you can get it to go in certain directions even. So if you have a fleet of these uh, kind of taking these observations, it's not just a single measurement balloon observation. It's it's something that can capture many profiles of the atmosphere over and over without anyone actually having to be there. So I think that's a really interesting approach to try to fill in some of these data sparse areas. If you had a a fleet of these windborns being launched from Cape Verde, um, which they started to do a little bit this year, you know, sky's the limit in my mind as far as starting to fill in some of these gaps that we have in our observations. Uh, Casper wants to know how many total missions you run in an average season. Oh, that's a really good question. You know, in Earl alone, we had about 20. <laughs> I think, you know, we might end up having maybe 50 uh, or so on a really busy season. And this one's going to be a little bit less. And, you know, some storms, we, we may only fly five or six times, like Hurricane Lisa that's impacting Belize. And like I said, with, you know, with Earl, it could be a, over 20 missions just in one storm um, for several days. Uh, so that, that keeps us on our toes. You never quite know what we're going to get in a given season. Fascinating. Let's, let's go back to Bill again. Bill or Hal, you've got questions, I'm sure, before we wrap up here in about 10 minutes. Okay. Yeah, the, the, I got a million of them mostly <laughs> unthought through, so I'll just throw them out there. You can laugh at them if you want, or maybe they would strike a chord there. The, the part about the gust fronts kicking up the dust, uh, also, in the in the peak of the dust season, you're 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 getting your maximum surface heating in the Sahara, so you probably have a a really deep dry adiabatic layer set up. So you're going to get quick vertical mixing that gets that dust to the high level, and then if it's if it's correlated with a stronger than normal easterly jet, there bingo, there you got your mechanism to spread it out very fast. That is that something you've been seeing? Definitely. And you see some of that with the balloon soundings over Africa. So, you know, what you're talking about is this mixed layer. How deep is it where the atmosphere is mixed up to what level? And over Africa, it can be up to 500 millibars, so up to 18,000 feet. And that's why the top of the Saharan air layer is at that level. So basically all that heating that we're talking about, and you're right on, and the dust that gets carried vertically with it, goes up to an extremely deep layer. We're never going to see a 500 millibar mix layer um, over, say, Florida. It's just never going to happen. But over Africa with that incredible heating, especially in July and August, uh, that sets things up. Really, it's, it's, it's what sets up the, the capability for this, this dust outbreak to, to start forming and become so deep before it gets swept out to sea. So, yeah, really interesting. And I, I wish there were more observations to kind of look at this. Uh, we don't have that right now. Yeah, so you, the forecast challenge comes one time because the big squall lines don't lend themselves to long-range forecasts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we see every tropical wave sends these gust fronts um, that, that aren't just clouds. There's so much dust getting swept up. It's, you know, you're talking millions of tons of dust getting sent to the Sahara, which will become a future dust outbreak. I mean, if you want to talk about being at ground zero for when it all starts, I think that would be a really neat place to take your observations, you know, along that that Sahara-Sahel boundary where the gust fronts are actually passing through. I bet you can get you a camel and I'll take you out there and do it. I would like that. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, Where else did I have one there? I lost my train of thought. Hal, any last thoughts? I'm just jotting down notes. This is like good. This is yeah. good stuff. 
I've actually been in the Sahara on on summer solstice with a with a team of students, but I've never been on that Sahara Sahel boundary. That would be an interesting place to be. So speaking about students, Jason, your your college students that are watching this and they are interested and in maybe go to grad school and do some cutting edge research, what would you recommend for them as far as like you know potential research topics related to this this whole concept? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many. It almost makes me wish I could go back to school and, and, and try to go after some of this stuff. I think the formation region and, you know, we're having we're talking about Cape Verde and over Africa. There could be some really interesting field program campaigns in the future to really go after that kind of thing. And I think try to understand what the models do well and don't do well. If you're interested in modeling, I think there's there's still a lot of room to grow there as well as far as understanding the big picture. And I. I still think we don't have a good handle on when we're, when we actually have all these observations and we see the Saharan air layer, Saharan dust storm wrapping into a, a tropical wave. We still don't have a great handle on what's, what's it, the future going to look like for this system and, and how will it play out? How well protected will it be? How infiltrated will it be by the dry air? So there's, I think a lot of the, the formation part of what we're talking about, I think there's a lot of room to grow there. Um, because really there's, there's really haven't been a lot of observations over the many past decades of, of this part of the world. Do you ever see a tropical season where you're like, wow, everything is prime for development right now, but probably the, the sow layer is, is suppressing like development. I mean, do you, does it ever come that, does it ever look that clear to you? There are some times where it is clear and it, it's easier to see early in the season because that's when the sow outbreaks are huge and, and they're very powerful as, as they're moving off the coast. And you could see a small tropical wave that might be curving up into the Saharan dust storm actually right through it. And that's going to be, that's not going to bode well for the system. So there are certain setups where it's much more obvious than other situations that, hey, yeah, this is going to be a situation where this tropical wave is really going to struggle. It's the tricky ones where there's the, the wave is riding right along the edge of the dust storm on that southern edge. And it's it's riding that fine line that could go either way. Um, and and those to me are exciting because we, we don't have a good answer as to what the future is with those a lot of I see times. what you're saying. It could be influenced. It could not be influenced. It's going to be a close call. It will. It is. It's a humbling thing to try to predict. I, I could say that from firsthand. Tim, Bill, any other questions? We've gotten some great questions from online. We've asked most of them. I'm going to go back even farther, Hal, to be before college students, and we've got some young people that watch these we know. And you know, how does one become a remote sensing scientist for NOAA and and end up where you are today? Because I know the path there has been fascinating. And and just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for for me personally, you know, I had I grew up in New England, and I had a a little recorder, and I would I would pretend to be the weather service uh, person uh, forecasting the blizzard of '78 was one of the ones I liked, <laughs> or there was a Hurricane David that came up to New England, and uh, now that I, I fly into storms today, but back then I was in bed under the covers. I never even looked out the window. I was too scared. I was about eight years old, so you know, I've, I guess I've come a long way. Now I'm flying into Category Five storms, but I think. You know, I think, and a lot of kids have this this passion. If I give talks to, to elementary school or middle grade school uh, kids, you can see the kids who have the passion for, you know, trying to understand what's going on, having the passion for Mother Nature. And for me, it was, I had that passion. Um, and, you know, going to undergraduate, I did not take a hard science route. Um, it's good to take, you know, take those science courses, the STEM courses. It's really important if you're going to get into meteorology or atmospheric science. But it's never too late. You know, I got out of undergrad and, and went back and took those. I used to be a social worker. Um, so I was a social worker by day and I was taking night classes at night to try to get those STEM courses that I missed. So I, I think my message to a lot of students would be, if it's a passion of yours, you know, go chasing after it. And there's no right timeline. You don't know. You don't have to know that you want to be a meteorologist when you're five years old. Uh, you can be 20. Um, and and go down that road if you really want to do it. But certainly the STEM is a really important part of it. Um, you know, whenever you go taking those classes, uh, definitely, you know, pay attention to the science and math because it is, it is a really important part of of this, the work we do and, and really understanding Mother Nature. Uh, she's tricky. Uh, she definitely needs a lot of science and math to try to understand her. Fascinating. Fascinating. Great answer. Thank you. Let me go back to Hal for a final thought. Hal, what do you have to wrap us up? Any thoughts from your end? 
There's some great stuff. I mean, I hear a lot of people asking questions about Saharan Air Layer, and you answered, you know, all of our questions here today. Um, how can people follow you online, the work you're doing? Are you on social media? Are there? Um, how can people see what you're up to? Yeah, so we are on social media. Um, you'll see us on Facebook, Hurricane Research Division. Uh, you'll also see us on Instagram uh, and Twitter. So watch for that. Uh, the Hurricane Hunters are also... We work closely with the Air, Aircraft Operations Center, so um, look for the hurry, NOAA Hurricane Hunters. Uh, you'll see our posts. So we try to post about um, a lot of the activities we're doing. You'll see some posts actually with Hurricane Lisa right now. Um, so we try to stay pretty active with, with that those social media efforts and, 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 and hope to get more followers. So I encourage people to check in. Bill? Oh, it's just great. I love this, this uh, session. It's a lot, of, a lot of good stuff we learned about today. And uh, glad you, you decided to not follow social work and get into meteorology because you make good contributions to our science. Thanks Thank for being here. Thank you. It's always great talking to you guys. Thank you. And Jason, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us as we wrap up today? Just yeah, I would just say you know stay vigilant um, with the hurricanes and with the tropics. You know, as Bill pointed out, um, it's it's not quite over till it's over. We can have busy Novembers. Uh, so you know. We all think about preparedness early in the season. Uh, we had a, a, a quiet start, but, but you know, preparedness continues right to the end of hurricane season. So I, I encourage folks to just, you know, stay vigilant, check out the Hurricane Center website and, and see what's happening out there. Just not to have any surprises come here at the, at the very end of the hurricane season. Awesome. Jason, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Great program. I, you know, I, I take a few notes. My sheet is full. No, you can't read it, but that's, a lot more than I usually write down. So that's, that's tell, tells you it was a good program. So Jason Dunyon, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. That wraps it up for today. I want to thank Bill, Hal, Jason, all for being part of the program today. I want to thank all of our sponsors who make this a possibility week in and week out. USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, the Weather Company, Weather Boy, see Live View on there, Walmart, Port of Brownsville, Black Magic Design, City of Brownsville, all organizations that make it possible for us to do this week in and week out throughout the hurricane season. And of course, make it possible for us to be live on South Padre Island in April of 2023. I hope you join us for the National Tropical Weather Conference in April. In the meantime, keep watching our Facebook page for updates about what program we're going to have next week. Uh, a little bit in flux right now. We've got some changes in plans perhaps coming up, but whatever it is, you're going to like it. I promise that. Thanks, guys. Thanks for watching. Thanks to all our viewers, and we'll see you next time on NTWC Live. Take care. Loved what you've heard on this week's episode? Well, well, the answer is simple. It would mean the world to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and feedback. Spreading the word really is the best way to grow our podcast and achieve even greater things. Thank you. Thank you.